Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Do you like middle school? I loved middle school. That's when I really came into my own in theater. I did great in middle school. How about you, Nick? This was, uh, this was like the apex of my mediocrity as a human. Like, I, I had a tough time in middle school. Wow. Your mediocrity? What does that even mean? I was just like, this was like when I was the most awkward had no idea who I was or what I was doing. Yeah, but that's every human being on the face of the planet. Good morning. Good morning. I'm at Valley Middle School, where we are active learners, critical thinkers, and responsible citizens. Today is Thursday, March 28th, and the time is 7.50. Please stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, the lip sync battle will take place on April 3rd at 6.30 in the cafeteria. Attention all lip sync participants. This is a mandatory dress rehearsal Monday, April 1st after school. I'm Nick Capodice. And I'm Hannah McCarthy. This is Civics 101, our Life Stages series. And today we're going to school. If I sound a little pathetic there, it's because Hannah and I weren't just visiting a random middle school. We were visiting my old school, Merrimack Valley Middle School, which was a great school. I played Logo, I watched all the President's Men, but it had been 25 years and it smelled exactly the same. And all that stuff just came flooding back. I wonder, can you just opt out? Do you even have to go to school? What? No. I know that now. Yeah, that's Dan Casino, political science professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University. And this is actually kind of weird. This is one of those ways in which America is exceptional, that we're different than other parts of the world. So if you were in France, you wouldn't have a choice about whether or not your kid was going to public school. Everyone goes to school. You don't have a choice. If you want to send your kid to church afterwards, great, have a blast. But you have to send your kid to the public school. Everyone has to get an education. In the United States, we've actually relaxed that. That was the uh, law in most states up until the 1960s. What happened was the Amish. The Amish are in a fortunate position respecting the schooling which they conduct for children beyond the eighth grade. It is learning by doing an ideal system. We are learning that current education... The Amish do send their kids to school, uh, but they typically take their kids out of school around eighth grade. The uh, state of Wisconsin started going to Amish families and fining them for truancy, saying your kid is not showing up to school, you're going to get a fine for truancy, and your kid has to go to school, whether you like it or not, because everyone has to go to school. The Amish then sued, saying this was an infringement on their religious rights, saying, look, we don't want our kids to learn about all the sinful stuff you learn in 10th grade? I don't know. It's not really in the curriculum, but they were learning. They didn't want the kids exposed to what was going on in high school. The lack in modern education of a clear connection between learning and doing is responsible for much of the student actions that we have today. This is from the argument in the Supreme Court case Wisconsin v. Yoder, the 1972 decision of which set the precedent that as long as you're receiving a, quote, adequate education... You do not have to go to public school. This is what allows for private schools and homeschooling in every state. What is an adequate education? Well, each state decides what that word adequate means. Because when it comes to federal laws about schools, it is slim pickings. 
So constitutionally, of course, the American Constitution does not mention education at all. There's no mention of schools in it. This is Campbell Scribner. He's a professor at the College of Education at the University of Maryland. And therefore, traditionally, the sort of governing principle has been the Tenth Amendment, which is the amendment that basically says any rights or responsibilities not specifically mentioned in the Constitution revert to the states. And so education usually is conceived as a state responsibility. Quick historical diversion here, Hannah. Are you going to use the horse and carriage sound effect again? I'm just one man. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I know. What are you trying to say? (laughs) Cast your mind back to the 1820s. Andrew Jackson is elected president in 1829. And at that time, in most states, you didn't just have to be a white man to vote. You had to be a white man who owned property. But the Jacksonians pushed for the, quote, common man to be part of our democracy. And by 1850, the land-owning requirement is dropped nationally. So now there's this grave concern. Can we trust the common man to vote well if he isn't educated? And we have education advocates like Horace Mann, who created the first public school system in Massachusetts. That is a model for other New England states to copy. But it is radically different in different parts of the country. So it sounds like the federal government had very little influence when it came to schools. And it does today as well. Most of the decisions about what's taught and funding for schools, it all happens on a state and local level. Most funding for schools comes from property taxes. But there are a few ways the federal government gets involved. It's like road laws. Every state can do whatever it wants with its own roads, and the federal government has nothing to do with that. But wait, you're saying. The federal government has lots to do with roads. They set the speed limit. They're setting all sorts of stuff for the roads. And the answer is yes but they're not allowed to do it. They have to get the states to voluntarily agree to let the federal government come in and do that. And they do that by withholding funding. So in the 1980s, if you wanted funding for your highways, you had to reduce your speed limit and you had to increase your drinking age to 21. And there were a couple states that held out. So Arizona didn't increase their drinking age to 21 until later than everyone else. New Hampshire didn't either. But guess what? Eventually they folded because they wanted that sweet, sweet federal money. The same holds true for schools. The federal government can't actually tell the schools what to do. What it can do is tie school funding to certain programs and tell the states, if you want this money, you have to do X, Y, and Z. What kind of programs is he talking about? This is stuff like sex education. And the federal government defines rules about what gets taught, and it changes under different administrations. So, for example, programs that promoted abstinence-only sex education got billions of dollars over the last 20 years. And then starting in 08, that shifted to programs about preventing pregnancy and STIs. And this is how it works for things like federal funding, for after-school programs, or even school lunch. So the federal government says, we're going to give you this money for school lunch, with the proviso that when you get this money, you have to turn around and give free or reduced-cost lunch to a lot of kids. Now, how do we pass that through Congress? It turns out that the school lunch program is mostly a subsidy for American farmers. So when the price of crops gets too low, farmers are going to go out of business. So the federal government has price guarantees. If the price gets too low, the federal government will come in and buy up a bunch of that crop. So what do they do with that crop? Well, part of it gets shipped overseas. That's where our food aid comes from. In the school lunch program, we buy up all this extra corn and soybeans, all these extra food products, and we ship them off to schools. So schools get all this food for free as long as they agree to go ahead and give uh, some of this food to kids for nothing. All that said, federal government accounts for under 10 percent of funding for schools. What about things like when kids have to go to school? You know, like the start time. 
how many days a year, summer vacation, all that stuff. All right. So school start time is chosen by your local school board. And over the last 20 years, there has been a concerted movement to get schools to start later in the day since young minds need sleep. But do you know why we have summer vacation, Hannah? I have always been told that it's because families needed help farming in the summer. I was taught the same thing, but it turns out that is one of the great education myths. Spring and fall are planting and harvest time, respectively. And the summer vacation starts due to wealthy families in cities in the late 1800s. Schools in the city were ruthlessly hot in these days before air conditioning. And well-heeled families would book it to the country for a few months leaving the poorest students to swelter in July and August. The summer vacation was created so everyone goes to school the same amount of time. Today in the U.S., there are about 4% of schools that do year-round schooling. Huh. But speaking of kids helping out with the family farm, when did we start making kids go to school? Uh, well, I'll say it once and then I'll try not to keep repeating it, but uh, for school stuff, the main question um, is who you were and where you lived. This is Adam Blatz. He's a professor of education at SUNY Binghamton. You know, so if you were um, a sort of affluent kid in the Northeast, uh, you went to school um, and from fairly early on. You know, in, in places like Massachusetts and Connecticut, it's as soon as the English people land, um, they establish pretty formal schools like um, Harvard, for example. Uh, and then village schools uh, where, you know, uh, literacy was... Um, pretty common in terms of, you know, teaching kids formally to read uh, and then sending a few kids on to, um, uh, to college, although the college would be very different from what we would expect. Is this exclusively men that Adam is referencing here? I incorrectly assumed it was. I thought way more men went to school than women in early America. By and large, girls in America have always gone to more school than boys. Uh, you'd think that because of the, uh, you know, the unfair treatment of, of girls and women, that they would be also deprived of school as they've been deprived of the vote, uh, you know, and other, other uh, basic rights. But with school, that's never been the case. Again, I'm speaking population-wise, not um, specifics. And they've always done way better at school by every measure. Um, school, girls have always been better, uh, better at school than boys, and that's true across ethnic groups. So Latinx, African-American, white, Asian, in every group, girls have always done better and done more formal school than boys. But for the most part, education was sort of you dropped in and you dropped out. This is Campbell Scribner again. You know, there was not a, a K-12 system at all. There was no public funding. There was basically no oversight. Um, and it was sort of that people would attend as long as they wanted, and they would get the skills that they wanted, and then they would go off and work. And the virtue of that, I guess, was that people weren't compelled to do things they didn't want to do, right? And so they, the students perhaps were a little bit more motivated in that sense. And for those of us who sort of felt like high school was a huge waste of four years of our lives, kids could actually get right onto the workforce, right? There was no, there was no compulsory attendance. Massachusetts had mandatory attendance laws in the 1850s, but Campbell told me that nobody enforced those until the turn of the 20th century. Child labor, of course, became unpopular at the end of the 19th century, and people wanted to get kids out of coal mines and out of factories because they were getting maimed. But really, they lacked the ability to really enforce those laws until the first decades of the 20th century. But 
During the Great Depression, kids aren't working because there are so few jobs to go around, and that is when things start to shift. It's only by the 1930s that high school attendance becomes more or less universal. Until then, you know, up through the 19-teens, only 10% of kids were even in high school, and only 4% graduated. So for most of us, we don't have to go back too far in our family history to find the first high school graduate. But when, you, when it comes to, um, say, everybody, the other huge dividing line is your race and ethnicity. Uh, for African Americans, not only were they, uh, if they were enslaved, not only were they not schooled during, you know, before the uh, Civil War and emancipation, but um, as you're probably aware, starting in the 1740s, there were more and more laws banning, uh, forbidding by you know, threat of uh, legal punishment formal schooling for, um, for African Americans, for enslaved people. It's, it's always been fraught, frankly. Um, and I'll include Native Americans in, in, that, in that same category, although there are some differences. Basically, uh, since the beginning, you've had racial progressives of various stripes, uh, uh, originally people who would want to sort of uh, abolish slavery and then recolonize former slaves back to Africa. That was seen as the progressive position up through the 1830s. And eventually just straight up abolitionists who want to end slavery and have a multiracial society. But both of these groups do see education as sort of uplifting what they see as a benighted race in African Americans and slaves. Um, and the hope is that you could eventually, again, sort of make citizens. The problem is that even the best of these reformers were awfully, I mean, in my language, you can hear it, they were awfully paternalistic in how they approached it, right? They did assume that there were sort of innate racial differences, most of them, and that African-Americans were either incapable of learning or um, at least delayed. Which Campbell pointed out, we shouldn't even have to say it, is complete nonsense. But when African-Americans are finally given access to education, it doesn't grant them the same benefits as it does to whites. You find all of these uh, testimonies where they basically write into newspapers or they speak it at meetings and they say, it's a sham. I've done everything I'm supposed to do and white owners still won't hire me for a job. I still get disrespected. I still get disenfranchised. And so that sort of complaint, which we still hear echoes of it today, of course, um, it was there from the very beginning. And while schools have always sort of wrestled with inclusion or exclusion, even in places where African-American kids were included in, in the possibility of schooling, a lot of times they didn't reap the results. Coming up, how students and teachers' constitutional rights change when they cross the schoolhouse gate. Nick, you've been saying that federal laws are few and far between when it comes to school, but aren't there some things that public school teachers cannot teach? Or what are you talking about specifically? I'm talking about, you know, like teaching religion, teaching like passages from the Bible, you know, because of the whole separation of church and state thing, right? Right. There is lots of Supreme Court precedent about that separation in public schools. But what happens in the classrooms themselves is an entirely different matter. For example, I asked Adam, what are the rules when it comes to teaching creationism and evolution in American schools? Yeah, I can do it in three words. No one knows. The Supreme Court doesn't know. Um, your, your local principal doesn't know. The kids in school have no idea. Uh, my, when my daughter was in fourth grade, her new best friend just transferred from Catholic school into her public school. And we're walking home. And I was like, how is school? You know, how is your new school? So she was like, it was okay. But at one point, someone sneezed. 
and I said, bless you. And then I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't know if you can say bless you in a public school. Um, so I think when it comes to what the law is ever since the Scopes trial of 1925 and, and before, no one knows what you can do with religion in schools. In a child's power to master the multiplication table, there is more sanctity than in all your shouted amens and holy holies and hosannas. State of Tennessee v. John Thomas Scopes, often referred to as the Scopes Monkey Trial, wonderfully depicted in the 1960 classic Inherit the Wind. It was a case about whether a Tennessee act that forbade teaching evolution was unconstitutional, and it started this conversation nationally. Precedent wasn't set until the 1960s. So, for example, can a science teacher teach creationism? Well, we know that um, by, by Supreme Court precedent and other court precedents, there's a really clear answer, and that answer is a resounding no. But we also know they surveyed a ton of high school biology teachers, and very few of them teach only evolution. Uh, 60% of them say they sort of mix it up. 13 or 14% teach only creationism. So the Supreme Court's clear, but what goes on in classrooms is anything but clear when it comes to creationism. What about students, their rights? Is it any clearer when it comes to them? You and I have done several shows about First Amendment rights in schools, but we should do one in the future about Fourth Amendment rights in schools, like can a teacher look in your locker or tell you to unlock your phone? The quickest summary of that is I can't go to your house, Hannah, and look in your closet, but a teacher can ask you to open your locker. The Supreme Court has ruled that teachers maintaining order outweighs a student's right to privacy at school if they have reasonable grounds. As I like to explain to students, all of the rights of the Bill of Rights and in our Constitution have limitations. Who's that? That is a personal hero is who that is. My name is Mary Beth Tinker, and when I was 13 years old, I became a plaintiff in what became a U.S. Supreme Court ruling for students' rights called Tinker versus Des Moines. The Mary Beth Tinker. Yep. Number 21, John F. Tinker and Mary Beth Tinker, minors, etc. et al. Petitioners versus Des Moines Independent Community School District of If any of you are unfamiliar with the Supreme Court case Tinker v. Des Moines from 1969, it was the topic of Hannah and my first episode together, which we called IRL1. Mary Beth Tinker and her brother John and others were suspended for wearing black armbands to mourn the dead on both sides of the Vietnam War. And their case went to the Supreme Court, the Tinkers won, and in the opinion of Justice Abe Fortas, he wrote, quote, it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. And today, Mary Beth travels the country advocating for students' rights. Young people have unique qualities. They have incredible creativity. They have energy. They are willing to take risk. And it's no wonder that they've been in the lead of movements through history to stand up for justice and for equality and all of our democratic values. Because another great quality of young people is that they have a sense of fairness. And adults are too quick to tell kids, you know, that life's not fair and get used to it. But I always tell kids, don't get used to it. Life should be fair. And when you see something that's not fair, you can use your First Amendment rights, the right to free speech, free press, to assemble, the right to petition, the right to have your own beliefs, your own religion, to do something about things that you see are not fair and to take action 
even a class action. Right now, students in Rhode Island are suing their state for not providing them an adequate civics education. Their argument is they are not being provided the opportunity to be prepared voters, jurors, participants in the political system. Hannah, in your birth episode, you talked about how children and students aren't recognized constitutionally, but the Tinker ruling changes that. One of my favorite parts of the ruling is that students are persons under our Constitution with the rights and responsibilities of persons. Abe Fortas, writing for the majority, also said that schools should not be enclaves of totalitarianism and that there might be some discomfort at times when people express their First Amendment rights or use their rights, but that's a discomfort that we are willing to pay in our democracy. There are some exceptions, though, under the First Amendment. Number one, substantial disruption of school. You could have your First Amendment rights and free speech, but you could not substantially disrupt school in the process of of using those rights. And number two, impinging on the rights of others would not be covered by the First Amendment rights of students. Now, whatever that means, and that's been debated ever since. When we were walking through Merrimack Valley Middle School, uh, I talked to Principal Cara LaMontagne about speech restrictions, and it started with the dress code. Good morning, Jake. Don't forget to take that hood off when you're ready. Are you not allowed to wear hoods? Why not? Just to be able to see faces, to be able to um, make eye contact with students, kind of help us read their body language a little better. When they cover up and cover their face, um, you know, it's hard to have any of that. And their code is pretty consistent with schools that I asked across the country. No hoods or hats, no clothing with profanity, no clothing that advocates drug or alcohol use. Um, And then there are some limitations around... um, um, I guess skin visibility, you know, just to, uh, you know, help students be respectful of their bodies as they're trying to figure things out as middle schoolers, um, you know, um, so we do have like some limitations around how your shorts have to be a certain length, your skirts have to be a certain length, um, we don't want to see undergarments, and you know, it's just not the place for that. And, but every place I've worked, the dress code for middle school is very similar, um, and, um, You know, it's really just about having an appropriate and non-disruptive environment. Um, Sometimes the students don't understand that, you know, how come my skirt being too short is disruptive to the learning environment. But it can be, and it's hard to explain that to them. Um, The students do talk about, you know, you're sexualizing us. That's the word that I hear often from from the girls. It's interesting that these young women use the words, you know, you're sexualizing me. I would never have thought to do that. It just speaks to how much the culture has shifted and I guess kind of empowered young women to use these terms. And And I would agree. This is my um, 20th year as an administrator. I was an assistant principal for a long time and did the discipline 95% of it. And um, I didn't used to hear that language. It's, it's hard. I mean, because I, I understand their perspective. And I, I, I really respect the students that I work with. And But we have we have this rule for a reason. It's just a hard one for them to grasp. And if you note, Kara used the word disruptive, which is the exact word used in that Tinker ruling. What about other kinds of disruption? I can think of some politically charged statements on a shirt or a hat that could get students pretty riled up. You said it. A high school student in Oregon who was suspended for wearing a pro-Trump T-shirt is getting the last laugh and a lot of money. In 2018, a student was suspended for refusing to remove a pro-border wall T-shirt. 
and the courts ruled it unconstitutional, and the school had to pay him $25,000 and write him a letter of apology. This is a juggling act, creating a respectful environment without disruption that enforces student protection and their rights. And if there's a takeaway from all this, it's that this juggling act is very difficult. One of the classic problems with American schools is that because we live in a liberal democracy, a free society, it puts a lot of weight on education, right? We, we say that we have a free market, right? And people will rise or fall based on their effort and their talents. And, we, you know, we don't have strong social programs because we basically imply that if you're poor, you just didn't work hard enough or you weren't smart enough or whatever. For that system to hold, we have to, we have to assume that kids do have a fair shot at the beginning, right? That we have a strong educational system that's, that's allowing a meritocracy to thrive and allowing people to rise and fall. We obviously don't have that. I mean, clearly we can all see that schools pass on opportunities to rich kids, to white kids, to suburban kids, whatever, that they deny to immigrants and students of color. I think we need to be more realistic with what we expect them to do. So not only are schools juggling rights, but they're also bearing the weight of expectations and the flaws in our system. If we could all agree that schools were supposed to do one thing, they could do it. If we all merely wanted the kids, our students, to know, you know, the three branches of government and basic civics, I'm sure that schools could teach all children that. But as it is, we expect them to do that and all the other subjects, and to have a winning football team, and to provide health care to students, and to provide hot lunch, and to, you know, do job training, and a million other things. It's not a surprise that they're not doing them all well. And even when they do start to do one of them well, it's not hard to pick another one out and sort of cherry pick where they're failing. So I think before we even propose how to improve schools, as a nation, we need to be much more serious with how we deliberate about their purpose and what we actually think they're supposed to be doing to begin with. Adam Latz told me that his family and friends have banned him from talking about education at the dinner table. And I said, you're unbanned here. What is the thing you want America to know about our school system? Oh, I got it. I got it. Sorry, I'm shouting. All right. So here's a question I I want everyone to ask themselves. And that is, do you think, uh, so you're walking down the street, you're minding your own business, a guy jumps out of an alley uh, and says this, uh, do you think American public education is in a crisis right now? What would you say? So what, what would you say? Do you feel like American public education writ large is in a crisis? Do you? No. Why not? There are more kids entering into higher education. There are more kids being educated now than have ever been educated. I think there are difficulties, but there are always difficulties. There are always controversies. But more people having access to education, I say that's always a good thing. Do you think that public schools are in crisis? I think I do. Why? Well, Adam asked me the same thing. There's a school 15 minutes away from my house where they can't play basketball in the gym because it rains asbestos on the kids in the band room below. And I brought up lots of media. I brought up The Wire Season 4 and Half Nelson. There's this sense that there are these, um, not just problems, but really uh, devastating and immediate crises. We might call it a state of emergency. Other countries are doing way better on math tests um, without spending as much money, we're told. Teachers from L.A. to Denver to West Virginia to uh, you name it, Oklahoma, are on strike. And the pictures of the 
the resources that they're showing from 2018 and this year are just, this is why they're winning, because nobody wants kids to go to schools that are that bad. Um, so uh, other countries seem like they're doing better. The teacher pay seems like it is, not just pay, but this condition of public schools seems like it's in certainly a crisis state. Uh, and then we have these savage inequalities, as uh, Jonathan Kozel called them, where some kids go to very nice schools, um, and five miles away in any urban district, you can go to a school that feels and looks like not just a nice prison, but a terrible prison. So on the one hand, yes, uh, there's no doubt American schools are in a crisis. Yet on the other hand, you aren't, I'm not, we are um, correct on both counts. American schools really are in crisis. And yet American schools, public schools, are fantastic. I think the kicker is it depends who you are, where you are, and most importantly, who your parents are. And that, that's a, a fundamental divide in America that is running right down the middle of our public schools. It sounds like he's saying that inequality writ large is the issue in public school. If a parent can afford to live somewhere that has a great school, they'll do that. And, you know, I'll be honest, I know that my parents partially selected our hometown because they could and because they researched the school systems and found out that it had decent schools. I did the same exact thing. Our little hypothetical American in the series so far has been born and educated. But what next when they're gainfully employed? What do they need to know before their soul is fettered to an office stool? That's next time on Civics 101. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Jackie Helbert, Ben Henry, Daniela Vidal-Ali, and Erica Janik as our executive producer. Maureen McMurray totally gave a boy her earring in school detention. Music in this episode by Azura and Azura remixed by Grim God, Blue Dot Sessions, Sci-Fi Industries, Scott Gratton, Young Carts, Kielo Cause, Daniel Birch, and Chris Zabriskie. Super special thanks to Ms. Dunn, her class... And Carla Montaigne, the principal of Merrimack Valley Middle School. Go Pride! And while we're here, hey, hey you! Are you a part of the 5% who listens to the end of these things? Well, we think that you're just great. Just great. And every two weeks, we cobble together supplemental reading and fun stuff that we encounter about civics, and we type it in our newsletter called Extra Credit, and you should join it. That's at civics101podcast.org slash extra credit. And while you're here, rate us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It helps us a ton. Give us a tweet at civics101pod, and we will read it for real. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Woohoo!